This is section four of Mark Twain by Archibald Henderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Humorist, Part One, recorded by John Greenman. Exhilaration can be infinite, like sorrow. A joke can be so big that it breaks the roof of the stars. By simply going on being absurd, a thing can become godlike. There is but one step from the ridiculous to the sublime. Gilbert K. Chesterton, quoting Charles Dickens. Not without wide significance in its bearing upon the general outlines of contemporary literature is the circumstance that Mark Twain served his apprenticeship to letters in the high school of journalism. Like his contemporaries, Artemus Ward and Bret Hart, he first found free play for his comic intransigence in the broad freedom of the journal for the masses. Brilliant as he was, Artemus Ward seemed most effective only when he spoke in weird vernacular through the grotesque mouthpiece of his own invention. Bret Hart sacrificed more and more of the native flavor of his genius in his progressive preoccupation with the more sophisticated refinements of the purely literary mark twain never lost the ruddy glow of his first inspiration and his style to the very end remained as it began journalistic untamed primitive both rudyard kipling and bernard shaw who like mark twain have achieved comprehensive international reputations have succeeded in preserving the early vigor and telling directness acquired in journalistic apprenticeship it was by the crude, almost barbaric cry of his journalese that Rudyard Kipling awoke the world with a start. That trenchant and forthright style, which imparts such an air of heightened verisimilitude to his plays, Bernard Shaw acquired in the ranks of the new journalism. The writer who aims at producing the platitudes which are not for an age but for all time says bernard shaw has his reward in being unreadable in all ages whilst plato and aristophanes trying to knock some sense into the athens of their day shakespeare peopling that same athens with elizabethan mechanics and warwickshire hunts ibsen photographing the local doctors and vestrymen of a norwegian parish Carpaccio painting the life of St. Ursula, exactly as if she were a lady living in the next street to him, are still alive, and at home everywhere among the dust and ashes of many thousands of academic, punctilious, most archaeologically correct men of letters and art, who spent their lives haughtily avoiding the journalist's vulgar obsession with the ephemeral mark twain began his career by studying the people and period he knew in relation to his own life jamestown hannibal and virginia city the stately mississippi and the orgiastic uproarious life of western prairie mountain and gulch start to life and live again in the pages of his books colonel sellers in the main correct but stretched a little here and there tom sawyer the magerful hero of boyhood the shrewd and kindly aunt polly drawn from his own mother huck finn 
with the tender conscience and the gentle heart these and many another were drawn from the very life in writing of his time apropos of himself mark twain succeeded in telling the truth about humanity in general and for any time in the main though there are noteworthy exceptions mark twain's works originated fundamentally in the facts of his own life he is a master humorist which is only another way of saying that he is a master psychologist with the added gift of humor because he looked upon himself always as a complete and well-rounded repository of universally human characteristics humanus sum et nil humanum mihi alienum est this might well have served for his motto it was his conviction that the american possessed no unique and peculiar human characteristics differentiating him from the rest of the world in the same way he regarded himself as possessing no unique or peculiar human characteristics differentiating him from the rest of the human race like omar he might have said i myself am heaven and hell for within himself he recognized in some form at higher or lower power every feature trait instinct characteristic of which a human being is capable the last half-century of his life as he himself said in his autobiography had been constantly and faithfully devoted to the study of the human race his knowledge came from minute self-examination for he regarded himself as the entire human race compacted together it was by concentrating his attention upon himself by recognizing in himself the quintessential type of the race that he succeeded in producing works of such pure naturalness and utter verity a humor which is at bottom good humor is always contagious but there is a deeper and more universal appeal which springs from genial and unaffected representation of the human species of the universal genus homo it has been said by foreign critics that the intellectual life of america in general takes its cue from the day whilst the intellectual life of europe derives from history if american literature be really journalism under exceptionally favorable conditions as defined by the danish critic johannes v jensen then must mark twain be a typical product of american literature a certain modicum of truth may rest in this startling and seemingly uncomplimentary definition interpreted liberally it may be taken to mean that america finds her key to the future in the immediate vital present rather than in a remote and hazy past mark twain was a great creative genius because he saw himself and so saw human nature in the strong searching light of the living present he is the greatest genius evolved by natural selection out of the ranks of american journalism crude rudimentary and boisterous as his early writing was at times provincial and coarse it bore upon its face the fresh stamp of contemporary actuality to the american of today it is not a little exasperating to be placidly assured by our british critics that america is sublimely unconscious that her childhood is gone 
and this gay paradox is less arresting than the asseveration that america is lacking in humor because she is lacking in self-knowledge there is a certain grimly comic irony in this commiseration with us on the part of our british critics for our failure joyously to realize our old age which they would have us believe is a sort of premature senescence and decay the new world is pitied for her failure to know without illusion the futility of the hurried pursuit of wealth of the passion for extravagant opulence and inordinate display of all the hostages youth in america eternally gives to old age america has produced great artists admits mr gilbert chesterton yet he maintains that that fact most certainly proves that she is full of a fine futility and the end of all things whatever the american men of genius are they are not young gods making a young world is the art of whistler a brave barbaric art happy and headlong does mr henry james infect us with the spirit of a schoolboy out of america has come a sweet and startling cry as unmistakable as the cry of a dying man this sweet and startling cry is less startling than the obvious reflection that mr chesterton has chosen to illustrate his ludicrous paradox the two american geniuses who have lived outside their own country absorbed the art ideals of the older more sophisticated civilizations and lost touch with the youthful spirit the still almost barbaric violence the ongoing rush and progress of america it is worthy of remark that mr james has always maintained that mark twain was capable of amusing only very primitive persons and whistler with his acid diablerie was wholly alien in spirit to the boisterous humor of mark twain that other brilliant but incoherent interpreter of american life mr charles wibley bound to the presupposed paradox of america's pathetic senescence and total deficiency in humor blithely gives away his case in the vehement assertion that america's greatest national interpreter is mark twain to the general mark twain is first and foremost and exclusively the humorist with his shrieking philistinism his dominant sense for the colossally incongruous his spontaneous faculty for staggering ludicrous contrast to the reflective mark twain subsumed within himself a certain surcharge and overplus of power a buoyancy and a sense of conquest which typified the youth of america it is memorable that he breathed in his youth the bracing air of the prairie shared the collective ardor of the argonauts felt the rising thrill of western adventure and expressed the crude and manly energy of navigation exploration and the daring hazard for new fortune to those who knew him in personal intimacy the quality that was outstanding omnipresent and eternally ineradicable from his nature was paradoxical as it may sound not humor not wit not irony not a thousand other terms that might be associated with his name but the spirit of eternal youth 
it is comprehensively significant and conclusive that to the day of her death mrs clemens never called her husband anything but the bright nickname youth mark twain is great as humorist admirable as teller of tales pungent as stylist but he has achieved another sort of eminence that is peculiarly gratifying to americans they distinguish in his writings says an acute french critic exalted and sublimated by his genius their national qualities of youth and of gaiety of force and of faith they love his philosophy at once practical and high-minded they are fond of his simple style animated with verve and spice thanks to which his work is accessible to every class of readers they think he describes his contemporaries with such an art of distinguishing their essential traits that he manages to evoke to create even characters and types of eternal verity they profess for mark twain the same sort of vehement admiration that they have in france for balzac whilst mark twain has solemnly averred that humor is a subject which has never had much interest for him it is nothing more than a commonplace to say that it is as a humorist and as a humorist only that the world seems to persist in regarding him the philosophy of his early life was what george meredith has aptly termed the philosophy of the broad grin mr gilbert chesterton once said that american humor neither unfathomably absurd like the french nor sharp and sensible and full of the realities of life like the scotch is simply the humor of imagination it consists in piling towers on towers and mountains on mountains of heaping a joke up to the stars and extending it to the end of the world this partial and somewhat conventional foreign conception of american humor is admirably descriptive of the cumulative and sky-breaking humor of the early mark twain then no exaggeration was too absurd for him no phantasm too unreal no climax too extreme the humor of that day was the humor bred of a barbaric freedom and a lawless untrammeled life mark twain grew up with a civilization but one remove from barbarism supremacy and marksmanship was the arbiter of argument the greatest joke was the discomfiture of a fellow-creature in the laughter of these wild westerners was something at once rustic and sanguinary the refinements of art and civilization seemed effeminate artificial to these rude spirits who laughed uproariously at one another plotted dementedly in circumvention of each other's plans and gloried in their defiance of both man and god deep in their hearts they cherished tenderness for woman sympathy for the weak and the afflicted and generosity indescribable and yet they prided themselves upon their barbaric rusticity glorying in a native cunning bred of their wild life and sharpened in the struggle for existence what after all is the jumping frog but the elaborate narrative in native vernacular of a shrewd practical joke as mark twain first heard it this story was a solemn recital of an interesting incident in the life of angel's camp it was mark twain who created the story 
he endowed with the comic note of whimsicality that imaginative realization of une chose vue which went round the world the humor of rustic shrewdness in criticism of art so elaborately exploited in the innocents abroad was displayed perhaps invented by mark twain in the early journalistic days in san francisco in the golden era an excellent example is found in the following observations upon a celebrated painting of samson and delilah then on exhibition in san francisco now what is the first thing you see in looking at this picture down at the bank exchange is it the gleaming eye and fine face of samson or the muscular philistine gazing furtively at the lovely delilah or is it the rich drapery or is it the truth to nature in that pretty foot no sir the first thing that catches the eye is the scissors at her feet them scissors is too modern there weren't no scissors like them in them days by a damn sight that was a brilliant and audacious conception having the just proportion of sanguinary humor embodied in mark twain's offer during his lecture on the sandwich islands to show his audience how the cannibals consume their food if only some lady would lend him a live baby there is the same wildly humorous tactlessness in the delicious anecdote of higgins higgins was a simple creature who used to haul rock and on the day judge bagley fell down the courthouse steps and broke his neck higgins was commissioned to carry the body in his wagon to the house of mrs bagley and break the news to her as gently as possible when he arrived he shouted until mrs bagley came to the door and then tactfully inquired if the widder bagley lived there when she indignantly replied in the negative he gently humored her whim and inquired next if judge bagley lived there when she replied that he did higgins offered to bet that he didn't and delicately inquired if the judge were in on being assured that he was not in at present higgins triumphantly exclaimed that he expected as much because he had the old judge curled up out there in the wagon and when mrs bagley saw him she would doubtless admit that about all that could comfort the judge now would be an inquest mark twain was so fond of this bloody and ghastly humor that on one occasion he utterly overreached himself and suffered serious consequences in the words of his fellow journalist dan de quill mark twain was fond of manufacturing items of the horrible style but on one occasion he overdid this business and the disease worked its own cure he wrote an account of a terrible murder supposed to have occurred at dutch nick's a station on the carson river where empire city now stands he made a man cut his wife's throat and those of his nine children after which diabolical deed the murderer mounted his horse cut his own throat from ear to ear rode to carson city a distance of three and a half miles and fell dead in front of peter hopkins saloon all the california papers copied the item and several made editorial comment upon it as being the most shocking occurrence of the kind ever known on the pacific coast of course 
rival virginia city papers at once denounced the item as a cruel and idiotic hoax they showed how the publication of such shocking and reckless falsehoods disgraced and injured the state and they made it as sultry as possible for the enterprise and its fool reporter when the california papers saw all this and found they had been sold there was a howl from siskiyou to san diego some papers demanded the immediate discharge of the author of the item by the enterprise proprietors they said they would never quote another line from that paper while the reporter who wrote the shocking item remained on its force all this worried mark as i had never before seen him worried said he i am being burned alive on both sides of the mountains we roomed together and one night when the persecution was hottest he was so distressed that he could not sleep he tossed tumbled and groaned aloud so i set to work to comfort him mark said i never mind this bit of a gale it will soon blow itself out this item of yours will be remembered and talked about when all your other work is forgotten the murder at dutch nick's will be quoted years from now as the big sell of these times said mark i believe you are right i remember i once did a thing at home in missouri was caught at it and worried almost to death i was a mere lad and was going to school in a little town where i had an uncle living i at once left the town and did not return to it for three years when i finally came back i found i was only remembered as the boy that played the trick on the schoolmaster mark then told me the story began to laugh over it and from that moment ceased to groan he was not discharged and in less than a month people everywhere were laughing and joking about the murder at dutch nicks out of that full free western life with its tremendous hazards of fortune its extravagant alterations from fabulous wealth to wretched poverty its tremendous exaggerations and incredible contrasts was evolved a humor as rugged as mountainous and as altitudinous as the conditions which gave it birth mark twain may be said to have created and made himself master of this new and fantastic humor which in its exaggeration and elaboration was without a parallel in the history of humorous narration at times it seemed little more than a sort of infectious and hilarious nonsense but in reality it had behind it all the calculation of detail and elaboration there was something in it of the volcanic as if at the bursting forth of some pent-up force of primitive nature it consisted in piling pelion on ossa until the structure toppled over of its own weight and fell with a stentorian crash of laughter which echoed among the stars whenever mark twain conceived a humorous idea he seemed capable of extracting from it infinite complications of successive and cumulative comedy this humor seemed like the mental functionings of some mad yet inevitably logical jester it grew from more to more from extravagance to extravagance 
until reason itself tired and gave over such explosive stories as how i edited an agricultural paper a genuine mexican plug the deciphering of the horace greeley correspondence the facts in the case of the great beef contract and many another as mr chesterton has pointed out have one tremendous essential of great art the excitement mounts up perpetually they grow more and more comic as a tragedy should grow more and more tragic the rack tragic or comic goes round until something breaks inside a man in tragedy it is his heart or perhaps his stiff neck in farce i do not quite know what it is perhaps his funny bone is dislocated perhaps his skull is slightly cracked mark twain's mountainous humor of this early type never contains the element of final surprise of the sudden the unexpected the imprevu we know what is coming we surrender ourselves more and more to the mood of the narrator holding ourselves in reserve until laughter no longer to be restrained bursts forth in a torrent of undignified and explosive mirth perhaps no better example can be given than the description of the sad fate of the camel in a tramp abroad in syria at the headwaters of the jordan this camel had got hold of his overcoat and after he finished contemplating it as an article of apparel he began to inspect it as an article of diet in his inimitable manner mark describes the almost religious ecstasy of that camel as it devoured his overcoat piecemeal first one sleeve then the other velvet collar and finally the tails all went well until the camel struck a batch of manuscript containing some of mark's humorous letters for the home papers their solid wisdom soon began to lie heavy on the camel's stomach the jokes shook him until he began to gag and gasp and finally he struck statements that not even a camel could swallow with impunity he died in horrible agony and mark found on examination that the camel had choked to death on one of the mildest statements of fact that he had ever offered to a trusting public here mark gradually works up to an anticipated climax by piling on effect after effect our risibility is excited almost as much by the anticipation of the climax as by the recital admirable instances of the ludicrous incident of the nonsensical recital are found in the scene in huckleberry finn dealing with the performance of the king's camelopard or royal nonsuch the address on the occasion of the dinner in honor of the seventieth anniversary of john greenleaf whittier an historic failure and the turkish bath in the innocents abroad in this prison filled with hot air an attendant sat him down by a tank of hot water and began to polish him all over with a coarse mitten soon mark noticed a disagreeable smell and realized that the more he was polished the worse he smelt he urged the attendant to bury him without unnecessary delay as it was obvious that he couldn't possibly keep long in such warm weather but the phlegmatic attendant paid no attention to mark's commands and continued to scrub with renewed vigor mark's consternation changed to alarm when he discovered that little cylinders like macaroni began to roll from under the mitten they were too white to be dirt 
he felt that he was gradually being pared down to a convenient size realizing that it would take hours for the attendant to trim him down to the proper size mark indignantly ordered him to bring a jack plane at once and get the matter over to all his protests the attendant paid no attention at all in one of the earliest critical articles about mark twain which appeared in appleton's journal of literature science and art for july fourth eighteen seventy four mr g t ferris gives an excellent appreciation of his humor of humor in its highest phase he says perhaps bret harte may be accounted the most puissant master among our contemporary american writers of wit we see next to none mark twain while lacking the subtlety and pathos of the other has more breadth variety and ease his sketches of life are arabesque in their strange combinations bits of bright serious description both of landscape and society carry us along till suddenly we stumble on some master-stroke of grotesque and irresistible fun he understands the value of repose in art one tires of a page where every sentence sparkles with points and the author is constantly attitudinizing for our amusement we like to be betrayed into laughter as much in books as in real life it is the unconscious easy careless gait of mark twain that makes his most potent charm he seems always to be catering as much to his own enjoyment as to that of the public he strolls along like a great rollicking schoolboy bent on having a good time and determined that his readers shall have it with him mark twain is the most daring of humorists he takes his courage in his hands for the wildest flights of fancy his humor is the caricature of situations rather than of individuals and he is not afraid to risk his characters in colossally ludicrous situations his art reveals itself in choosing ludicrous situations which contain such a strong coloring of naturalness that one's sense of reality is not outraged but titillated hence it is that his humor in its earlier form does not lend itself readily to quotation his early humor is not epigrammatic but cumulative and extensive each scene is a unit and must appear as such andrew lang not inaptly catches the note of mark twain's earlier manner when he speaks of his almost mephistophelian coolness an unwearying search after the comic sides of serious subjects after the mean possibilities of the sublime these with a native sense of incongruities and a glorious vein of exaggeration mark twain began his career as a wag he rejoiced in being a fun-maker he discarded the weird spellings and crude punning of his american forerunners his object was not play upon words but play upon ideas he offered his public as frank r stockton pointed out the pure ore of fun if he puts his private mark on it it will pass current it does not require the mint stamp of the schools of humor he is never afraid of being laughed at indeed that is a large part of his stock and trade for throughout his entire career nothing seemed to give him so much pleasure though it is one of the lowest forms of humor 
as making fun of himself. In describing two monkeys that got into his room at Delhi, he said that when he awoke, one of them was before the glass brushing his hair, and the other one had his notebook and was reading a page of humorous notes and crying. He didn't mind the one with the hairbrush, but the conduct of the other one cut him to the heart. He never forgave that monkey. His apostrophe, with tears, over the tomb of Adam, only to be fully appreciated in connection with his satiric indignation over the drivel of the maudlin Mr. Grimes, who never bored, but he struck water, is an admirable example of the mechanical fooling of self-ridicule. In his penetrating study, Mark Twain, a century hence, published at the time of Mr. Clemens' death, Professor H. T. Peck makes this observation. We must judge Mark Twain as a humorist by the very best of all he wrote, rather than by the more dubious productions, in which we fail to see at every moment the winning qualities and the characteristic form of this very interesting American. As one would not judge of Tennyson by his dramas, nor Thackeray by his journalistic chit-chat, nor Sir Walter Scott by those romances which he wrote after his fecundity had been exhausted, so we must not judge Mark Twain by the dozen or more specimens which belong to the later period, when he was ill at ease and growing old. Let us rather go back with a sort of joy to what he wrote when he did so with spontaneity, when his fun was as natural to him as breathing, and when his humor was all American humor, not like that of Juvenal or Hierocles, acrid or devoid of anything individual, but brimming over with exactly the same rich in responsibility which belonged to Steele and Lamb and Irving. It may seem odd to group a son of the New World and of the Great West with those earlier classic figures who have been mentioned here, yet upon analysis it will be discovered that the humor of Mark Twain is at least first cousin to that which produced Sir Roger de Coverley and Rip Van Winkle and the Stout Gentleman. The details of the Gambetta Fortu deal, in which Mark played a somewhat frightened second, have furnished untold amusement to thousands and his description of the inadvertent faux pas he committed at his first public lecture is humorous for any age and society. The sign announcing the lecture read, Doors open at seven. The trouble will begin at eight. For three days Mark had been in a state of frightful suspense. Once his lecture had seemed humorous, but as the day approached it seemed to him to be but the dreariest of fooling without a vestige of real fun. He was so panic-stricken that he persuaded three of his friends, who were giants in stature, genial and stormy-voiced, to act as clackers and pound loudly at the faintest suspicion of a joke. He bribed Sawyer, a half-drunk man who had a laugh hung on a hair-trigger, to get off, naturally and easily, during the course of the evening, as many laughs as he could. He begged a popular citizen and his wife to take a conspicuous seat in a box, so that everybody could see them. He explained that, when he needed help, he would turn toward her and smile as a signal, 
that he had given birth to an obscure joke then if ever was her time not to investigate but to respond the fateful night found him in the depths of dejection but heartened up by a crowded house full even to the aisles he bravely set in and proceeded to capture the house his clackers hammered madly whenever the very feeblest joke showed its head sawyer supported their herculean efforts with bursts of stentorian laughter as mark explained not without a touch of pride inferior jokes never fared so royally before but his hour of humiliation was at hand on delivering a bit of serious matter with impressive unction to which the audience listened with rapt interest he glanced involuntarily as if for her approval at his friend in the box he remembered the compact but it was too late he smiled in spite of himself forth came her ringing laugh peal after peal which touched off the whole audience the explosion was immense sawyer choked with laughter and the bludgeons performed like pile-drivers the little morsel of pathos was ruined but what matter so long as the audience took it as an intentional joke and applauded it with unparalleled enthusiasm mark wisely let it go at that reading through the innocents abroad after many years i find that it has not lost its power to provoke the most side-splitting laughter and the same may be said of a tramp abroad and following the equator which whilst not so boisterously comical exhibit greater mastery and restraint his own luck as mark twain observed on one occasion had been curious all his literary life he never could tell a lie that anybody would doubt nor a truth that anybody would believe could there be a more accurate or more concise definition of the effect of his writings in especial of his travel notes like his mother he too never used large words but he had a natural gift for making small ones do effective work how delightfully human is his comment on the vagaries of woman's shopping human nature he found very much the same all over the world and he felt that it was so much like his dear native home to see a venetian lady go into a store buy ten cents worth of blue ribbon and then have it sent home in a scowl it was such little touches of nature as this which as he said moved him to tears in those far-off lands in speaking of palestine he says that its holy places are not as deliriously beautiful as the books paint them indeed he asserts that if one be calm and resolute he can look on their beauty and live he bequeathed his rheumatism to baden-baden it was little but it was all he had to give his only regret was that he could not leave something more catching there is nothing better in all of the innocents abroad than his analysis of the theological hierarchy of the roman catholic church disclaiming all intention to be frivolous irreverent or blasphemous he solemnly declared that his observations had taught him the real way the holy personages were ranked in rome the mother of god otherwise the virgin mary comes first followed in order by the deity peter and some twelve or fifteen canonized popes and martyrs last of all came jesus christ the saviour but even then always as an infant in arms 
who can ever forget the mark twain who kissed the hawaiian stranger for his mother's sake the while robbing him of his small change who was so struck by the fine points of his honolulan horse that he hung his hat on one of them who rode glaciers as gaily as he rode mexican plugs and found diverting programs of the roman coliseum in the dust and rubbish of two thousand years ago samuel l clemens achieved instantaneous and world-wide popularity at a single bound by the creation of a fantastic and delightfully naive character known as mark twain at a somewhat later day bernard shaw achieved world-wide fame by the creation of a legendary and fantastic wit known as g b s to the composition of mark twain went all the wild humor of ignorance the boisterously comic admixture of the sanguinary and the stoical the humor of the jumping frog and the innocence abroad is the savage and naive humor of the mining camp not the sophisticated humor of civilization it is significant that mademoiselle blanc a polished and refined intelligence found the nil admirari attitude of mark twain no more enlightening nor suggestive than the stoicism of the north american indian this mirthful and mock innocent naivete so alien to the delicate and subtle spirit of the french found instant response in the heart of the anglo-saxon and germanic peoples the english and the germans no less than the americans rejoiced in this gay fellow with his combination of appealing ignorance and but half-concealed shrewdness they laughed at this unsophistic naif gazing in wide-eyed wonderment at all he saw and they delighted in the consciousness that behind this thin mask lay an acute and searching intelligence reveling in the humorous havoc wrought by his keen perception of the contrasts and incongruities of life the note of this early humor is perfectly caught in the incident of the egyptian mummy deliberately assumed ignorance of the grossest sort by mark twain and his companions had the most devastating effect upon the foreign guide one of that countless tribe to all of whom mark applied the generic name of ferguson after driving ferguson nearly mad with pretended ignorance they finally asked him if the mummy was dead when ferguson glibly replied that he had been dead three thousand years he was dumbfounded at the fury of the doctor for being imposed upon with vile second-hand carcasses the poor frenchman was warned that if he didn't bring out a nice fresh corpse at once they would brain him no wonder that later when he was asked for a description of the party ferguson laconically remarked that they were lunatics in speaking of contemporary society ibsen once remarked we have made a fiasco both in the heroic and the lover roles the only parts in which we have shown a little talent are the naively comic but with our more highly developed self-consciousness we shall no longer be fitted even for that with time and our highly developed self-consciousness have largely passed the novelty and the charm of this early naively comic humor of mark twain but it is as valid still as it was in eighteen sixty seven 
to record honestly the impressions directly communicated to one by the novelties peculiarities individual standards and ideals of other peoples and races mark twain spoke his mind with utter disregard for other people's opinions the dicta of criticism or the authoritative judgment of the schools the innocents abroad is eminently readable not alone for its humor its clever journalism its remarkably accurate and detailed information and its fine descriptions the rare quality which made it sell right along like the bible is that it is the vital record of a keen and searching intelligence mark twain found so many of the masterpieces of the world utterly unimpressive and meaningless to him that he actually began to distrust the validity of his own impressions every time he gloried to think that for once he had discovered an ancient painting that was beautiful and worthy of all praise the pleasure it gave him was an infallible proof that it was not a beautiful picture nor in any sense worthy of commendation he pours out the torrents of his ridicule not indiscriminately upon the works of the old masters themselves though he regarded nature as the grandest of all the old masters but upon those half-baked sycophants who bend the knee to an art they do not understand an art of which they feign comprehension by mouthings full of cheap and meaningless tags as potent and effective as ever in its fine comic irony is that passage in which he expresses his envy of those people who pay lavish lip-service to scenes and works of art which their expressionless language shows they never realize nor understand he reserves his most biting condemnation for those second-hand critics who accept other people's opinions for their criteria and rave over beauty soul character expression and tone in wretched dingy moth-eaten pictures he hated with the heartiest detestation such people whose sole ambition seemed to be to make a fine show of knowledge of art by means of an easily acquired vocabulary of inexpressive technical terms of art criticism there is much i fear of misguided honesty in mark twain's records of foreign travel to the things which he personally reverenced he was always reverential and his expression of likes and dislikes of prejudices and predilections was honest and fearless grant as we may the humorist's right to exaggerate and even to distort for the purposes of his fun-making it does not therefore follow that his judgments however forthright or sincere are valid reputable criticisms one's enjoyment of his fresh and hilarious humor his persistent fun-making is no whit impaired by the recognition that he was lacking in the faculty of historic imagination and in the finer artistic sense it is in a measure because of his lack of culture and more broadly lack of real knowledge that he was enabled to evoke the laughter of the multitude the mississippi pilot homely naive arrogantly candid says mr s p sherman refuses to sink his identity in the object contemplated that as corporal nim would have said is the humor of it he is the kind of traveling companion that makes you wonder why you went abroad he turns the old world into a laughing-stock by shearing it of its storied humanity 
simply because there is nothing in him to respond to the glory that was greece to the grandeur that was rome simpler because nothing is holier to him than a joke he does not throw the comic light upon counterfeit enthusiasm he laughs at art history and antiquity from the point of view of one who is ignorant of them and mightily well satisfied with his ignorance this picture reminds us of the foreign critics of the innocents abroad and a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court it is too partial and restricted the whole point of mark twain's humor as exhibited in these travel notes is missed in the statement that he does not throw the comic light upon counterfeit enthusiasm for this might almost be taken as the philosophy of his books of foreign travel and yet mr sherman's dictum in its entirety quite clearly provokes the question whether as he intimates the overwhelming majority of his fellow-citizens also were not mightily pleased with mark twain's point of view and whether they did not enjoy themselves hugely in laughing not at him but with him in commenting on the reasons for the broadening and deepening of his humor with the passage of time mr clemens once remarked to me i succeeded in the long run where shillaber doe sticks and billings failed because they never had an ideal higher than that of merely being funny the first great lesson of my life was the discovery that i had to live down my past when i first began to lecture and in my earlier writings my sole idea was to make comic capital out of everything i saw and heard my object was not to tell the truth but to make people laugh i treated my readers as unfairly as i treated everybody else eager to betray them at the end with some monstrous absurdity or some extravagant anticlimax one night after a lecture in the early days tom fitch the silver-tongued orator of nevada said to me clemens your lecture was magnificent it was eloquent moving sincere never in my entire life have i listened to such a magnificent piece of descriptive narration but you committed one unpardonable sin the unpardonable sin it is a sin you must never commit again you closed a most eloquent description by which you had keyed your audience up to a pitch of intensest interest with a piece of atrocious anticlimax which nullified 
all the really fine effect you had produced my dear clemens whatever you do never sell your audience and that continued mr clemens was my first really profitable lesson it was the toning down of his youthful extravagance fitch's precept not to sell his audience mrs fairbanks warning not to try their endurance of the irreverent too far that had a markedly salutary effect upon mark twain's humorous writings there can be no doubt that the deep and lifelong friendship of mr howells expressing itself as occasion demanded in the friendliest criticism had a subduing influence upon mark twain's tendency as a humorist to extravagance and headlong exaggeration in time he left the field of carpet-bag observation the humorous depicting of things seen from the rear of an observation car so to speak and turned to fiction now at last the long pent-up flood of observation upon human character and human characteristics found full vent tom sawyer and huckleberry finn are the romances of eternal youth the same yesterday today and forever they are freighted however with a wealth of pungent and humorous characterizations that have made them contemporary classics from ethical sophistication and moral truantry mark twain evolves an inexhaustible supply of humor the revolt of mischievous and bohemian boyhood against the stern limitations of formal puritanism is in a sense a principle that he carried with him to the grave there are no more vital passages in his fiction says mr howells than those which embody character as it is affected for good as well as for evil by the severity of the local sunday schooling and church-going out of the pangs of conscience the ingenious sedatives of sophistry the numerous variations of the lie he won a wholesome humor that left you thinking by inversion upon the moral involved knowledge of human nature finds expression in forms made permanently effective through the arresting permeation of humor the incident of tom sawyer and the whitewashing of the fence is the sort of thing over which boy and man alike can chuckle with satisfaction for tom sawyer had discovered a great law of human action without knowing it namely that in order to make a man or boy covet a thing it is only necessary to make the thing difficult to attain huck's reasoning about chicken stealing the exquisitely comic shifting of ground from morality to expediency is a striking example of the best type of mark twain humor following his father's example huck would occasionally lift a chicken that wasn't roosting comfortable for had his father not told him that even if he didn't want the chicken himself he could always find somebody that did want it and a good deed ain't never forgot huck confesses that he had never seen his pap when he didn't want the chicken himself the germ of mark twain's humor wherever it is found from the innocents abroad to 
the connecticut yankee and captain stormfield's visit to heaven is found in the mental reactions resulting from stupendous and glaring contrasts first it is the wild western humorist primitive and untamed running amuck through the petrified formulas and encrusted traditions of europe then comes the fantastic juxtaposition of the shrewd connecticut yankee with his comic irreverence and raucous sense of humor his bourgeois limitations and provincial prejudices to the court of king arthur with its medievalism its primitive rudeness and social narrowness how many have delighted in the yankee's inimitable description of his feelings toward that classic damsel of the sixth century at first he got along easily with the girl but after a while he began to feel for her a sort of mysterious and shuddery reverence whenever she began to unwind one of those long sentences of hers and got it well under way he could never suppress the feeling that he was standing in the awful presence of the mother of the german language mark twain ransacked the whole world of his own day all countries savage and civilized for the display of effective and ludicrous contrast and he opened up an illimitable field for humanizing satire as mr howells has said in his juxtaposition of sociologic types thirteen centuries apart not even heaven was safe from the comprehensive survey of his satire and captain stormfield's visit to heaven is a remarkable document a forthright lay sermon the conventional idea of heaven the theologic conception of eternity as heedlessly taught from the pulpit thrown into comic yet profoundly significant relief against the background of the common sense of a deeply human thoroughly modern intelligence humor as thackeray has defined it is a combination of wit and love certain it is that in the case of mark twain wit was a later development of his humor the love was there all the time mark twain has not been recognized as a wit for he was primarily a humorist and only secondarily a wit but the passion for brief and pungent formulation of an idea grew upon him and puddenhead wilson's calendar is a mine of homely and memorable aphorism epigram injunction End of Part 1 of The Humorist Read by John Greenman